welcome to Private Equity Laid Bare, the podcast. And our guest today is Grant Fleming. And I've been doing this uh, work, like private equity research, for a very long time, uh, 20 years. And ever since I've been doing private equity research, I've been reading papers from that guy called Grant Fleming. In particular, each time it's something about Asia private equity, that's, you know, this person I would read a paper off. And it is actually the very first time I'm going to talk to him live. So I'm very nervous about it. I had never met him. So Grant, thank you so much for accepting this invitation to talk to us about the Australian New Zealand uh, private equity market uh, down under. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. You have so much experience. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you accepted the invitation. Thanks very much, Ludovic. And um, likewise, I've been reading your papers for 20 years and become increasingly excited about the way in which you've been analysing the private equity market and holding a, a torch up to the sorts of uh, things that go on in the private equity market and being much more um, much more careful about the way in which people talk about the returns and, and they behave in this market. So it's, it's great to talk to you and um, let's have some fun talking about private equity down under. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, um, what is special about this down under region? Um, and we could, we could have called it Oceania, but is, we are basically talking in private equity terms only about Australia and New Zealand. Um, what is special about that region? I mean, Australia and New Zealand are more or less the same country. I'm, I'm just told one of them can play rugby better than the other one. But besides that, they seem pretty similar. But what is different to the rest of the world? You're right. One country does play rugby better than the other. <laughs> Um, they, the, the markets are um, they're relatively small, open economies. Um, they've got major trading relationships with the rest of the Asia Pacific, and yet they have a rule of law and a structure that's very similar to those people that are, that are uh, familiar with Anglo-Saxon rule of law and market structure and so forth. So in many ways, they, they've become a, a microcosm of how private equity has worked in a small, its small um, and medium-sized economies. And also how private equity has worked when companies want to expand from their local market off into a really dynamic, exciting, fast-growing, complicated region that we, we call Asia or Asia-Pacific, but is really a collection of a whole range of countries going through various stages of economic development. So it doesn't look so, that complex because it, it does look like, again, pretty similar, uh, like Australia, New Zealand seems pretty integrated, similar. So it's not like, so there are some regions in the world with that kind of space, within that space, you would have 10,000 different languages and so on and so forth, right? So it, it does seem pretty uniform, not that complex. That, that's fair. We both speak English, although slightly differently. Um, the, the economies are small business economies. So think about them as being, I mean, in many ways, it's kind of similar to the UK economy in the sense that there is a, a lot of uh, businesses that are founder, entrepreneur or family owned. Uh, they have a multiple gen generations of ownership within those uh, companies. There are a lot of businesses that require capital to expand overseas uh, or to indeed expand into their own markets. So um, from, those, from those perspectives, they're not too dissimilar to a, a, another small economy um, around the world. Scandinavia and Scandinavian countries is another um, set, of, set of economies which are often compared to Australia and New Zealand. Um, one or two things that are quite different about Australia and New Zealand, Australia in particular, um, but this also applies to New Zealand, is that many of the markets are, are oligopoly, oligop oligopolistic. 
in the sense there's one or two major market players or major market leaders, and then there's a small group of companies sometimes creating a niche in their particular market segment. And with Australia, it's a very large and geographically diverse country, um, it, yet it's a highly urbanised country. And so it's possible for companies to gain a local geographical monopoly or a competitive advantage. And that creates quite interesting investing opportunities for private equity firms. Again, not too dissimilar to some countries. Maybe think about it as the Federation of the United States, where you can have a business in California that's operating quite differently and, and separately from a business in, in Florida. So, um, so there are some features of the economies. Um, New Zealand's an open economy that's primarily primary export. Australia's an open economy and its exports are primarily minerals, although both of them have large education sectors. Um, but what would what's be quite the, surprising. Hmm, sorry, sorry, what would be the, the, the what would private equity specialize in in this region? Is it the fact yeah. that private equity specialize in helping companies to export to the rest of the world? Or is it that they would give solutions to family businesses that are looking for successions in, in their family uh, businesses? Like you described, a lot of these businesses in this region is, is in the same family for generations. What kind of special situations or solutions private equity brings to? Uh, it's, it's, and we're talking today primarily about private equity rather than venture capital. There is a quite a robust, small, but robust venture capital market in Australia and New Zealand as well. But let's focus here on private equity. Um, it's, it's change of control transactions. So exactly those sorts of transactions that private equity is good at, that is providing a, an ownership change solution for a family or for a founder entrepreneur. It's uh, ex expansion capital. And uh, in that instance, it's providing capital, but also skills, expertise, the capability to be, to be able to undertake expansion either organically or through acquisition that really allows company, and you know, private equity is not for every company, right? But for those companies that cho choose a private equity partner, it's allowing those companies to be able to leverage the skills of a private equity firm and to transform itself from one particular mark position to the next hopefully better, more efficient and larger market position and make that company attractive for sale to the next owner. So sometimes in, in a change of control transaction, the founder and entrepreneur has a particular set of people they actually do not want to sell to. You know, large organisations they've been competing with ever since they started the business. So very often a management buyout of that business or a private equity uh, sales solution is quite attractive to them because they can see the business continuing on in someone else's hands other than a, an established um, competitor. So, um, so in many ways, um, the, the sort of things that private equity does really well for smaller, medium-sized businesses is the sort of thing that uh, is really the bread and butter and the most common types of transactions in the Australian New Zealand market. Yes, there are large, large buyouts. Yes, there are large public-to-private transactions, and indeed, we saw prior to the global financial crisis, a lot of large uh, public private transactions, but really the day-to-day -day, uh, investment activity of private equity firms in Australia and New Zealand is small and mid-sized expansion capital and buyouts. Yeah, so because there's not really some Australian, New Zealand private equity firms I could name actually, right? So even in the UK, you would still have like a Amira, CVC, APAX that are pretty big. Um, they are all, all the rest is in the US, right? With the KKR, Blackstone, etc. I don't know in Australia, New Zealand. So I would have guessed that it is indeed mostly smaller private equity firms specializing in smaller companies trying to help with generational changes uh, rather than 
international expansion of these sorts of things? Um, yes, um, it's certainly true that the majority of the private equity firms in the industry are, are, are local and probably don't have the same sort of profile as KKR or Panera or CVC or Bain, for an example. All of those global firms, by the way, would buy and have bought companies in Australia and New Zealand um, and have done very well in many instances out of acquiring those businesses. Um, you know, the, the, the way in which we um, often see private equity play itself out in many countries is that um, you know the great deals are small and mid-sized deals and it's by the way it's not just ownership transition um, very often multinational companies look at australia and new zealand as being interesting smaller markets in which to have a market presence but as you know with corporations changing strategy over time very often they will buy businesses in in regions and then they'll sell businesses in regions so um spin outs of of divisions for multinationals is another important um, deal flow for, for private equity. And as I mentioned, um, you know, very often um, um, you know, allowing private equity or private equity partnering with a firm to uh, buy competitors and, and increase their market size is attractive given that many of the, the industries in Australia and New Zealand are, are um, only have one or two major players. And in the larger market segment, is it mainly like minerals that in Australia that are targeted by the large international private equity firms? So, although I've heard at one point, is it Penfold, the name of his winery that in Australia that Blackstone wanted to buy? So I guess this is kind of real asset. But um, so is, is it is it this sort of, of, of more like real asset sides of things that are targeted by the international private equity firms? No. <clears throat> so... Um... No, it's, it's, so when you look at the GDP of Australia, the largest um, contribution to GDP in terms of economic sector is services. So um, the, the mining sector is a large and important sector in Australia, but it's primarily an export sector. Um, it has a very, very complicated supply chain, and certainly that supply chain influences for some states in Australia, particularly Western Australia, and Queensland influences the nature of industry in those states. But the largest two states in Australia, uh, Victoria and New South Wales, are large urbanised service-oriented um, economies. Similarly in New Zealand, uh, Auckland is the largest city and um, it is a large urbanised service-oriented um, economy. And so the majority of private equity transactions, whether they're uh, undertaken by global or regional firms or by local firms are actually the sort of sectors where, that we would see private equity uh, invest in in other countries. Um, specialty retail, retail, software technology, education, health, all those sorts of things that attract particularly buyouts. Um, this is not necessarily highly leveraged buyouts, but um, deals that um, sectors that will attract buyouts uh, where there's a a certain level of leverage that can be endured by the firm together with equity um, um, in order to um, acquire a company. Excellent. Um, in, in terms of, of returns, what, what does it look like? Well, it's like um, many other developed markets. There's a wide dispersion of returns. You know, there are, there are groups that do very, very well and who produce uh, returns in the really the top decile globally. Um, it's always a question about how you measure returns, of course, and I don't need to talk to you about all of the um, different ways in which private equity display their returns uh, to investors. But, um, but there are half a dozen firms that produce returns as good as the best private equity firms in the United States and Europe. In fact, just recently, one of the firms in Australia was named as the consistent top 10 
private equity firm in the world from Prequin. Take that for what it's worth, but nevertheless, it's an indication that you know there is some seriously good returns can be generated. But okay. like all markets, there's a lot of firms that do okay, but don't really beat on a public markets equivalent basis, don't really beat private um, public markets, I should say. And there are some firms that are no good. And so over time, um, as a market develops, you have much more evidence in order to be able to judge those firms that are good and those firms that are not. And if these uh, um, the firms are relatively small, right? These practically firms are, are, are pretty small. Where does the money come from? Does it mean they raise mainly locally? Because it's pretty hard if, like, for a small Australian practically firm to come to Europe and say to like Dutch pension funds, why don't you invest with me? Or is it easy? It, it, we feel that it would be mainly the locals. And there is quite a lot of money in the pension funds, it seems, in, in Australia and New Zealand. So are these the main feeder of, of the money to these pension, to these practically funds? Um, historically, they were. So superannuation funds, as we call them in Australia and New Zealand, um, were the primary financiers of private equity funds uh, during the 2000s. Um, however, that's really changed um, in the last 10 years or so. And the first of all, the diversity of type of investor that supports private equity funds is, is increased greatly. So family offices, foundations, endowments, high net worth investors are much more likely to be investors in private equity firms these days in Australia and New Zealand, uh, New Zealand even more so than Australia, and, uh, and offshore uh, investors, uh, particularly funder funds, but not only funder funds, uh, European pension funds, um, US endowments and pension funds advised by consultants uh, are very, very common limited partners in the larger private equity firms. Yes, the smaller ones are less likely to um, take offshore capital. And the reason for that's really one of scale. Uh, if you're a large um, offshore investor, even a large domestic investor for that matter, um, you're looking to make a meaningful or a material allocation to a private equity fund because it'll have a material or a meaningful impact for your private equity portfolio in your own asset base, right? So if your asset base is 50, 100, 150 billion dollars, uh, it's very hard to make a $25 million allocation to a private equity firm and justify the, the fixed costs associated with analysing that particular opportunity versus investing $100 or $150 million in an opportunity. Um, and so you tend to find the type of limited partner set is a function of the size of the private equity firm. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty direct relationship. Thank you. Yeah, it mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, can you tell us about some transactions that would be characteristics of a region that would be like classic uh, tra transactions of private equity in the region and talk to us a bit what private equity brought to these companies uh, and, and why it worked or didn't work? Yeah, so um, so the first is, these are two transactions that we've been involved in in the last uh, three or four years. And um, the, the, the first is a classic um, founder entrepreneur business, two brothers started a business called Education Perfect. It was a New Zealand uh, headquartered business based in Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, they saw an opportunity to start an online education platform to offer secondary school students in Australia, New Zealand, uh, languages, science, humanities, English, mathematics, that was online, that provided um, examples that was and, and ways for a student to individually go through um, um, examples in their homework, for example, and for teachers to be able to track the individual learning progress of those students. 
uh, it sounds like it sounds like a, a normal idea today, given the online world that we've all switched to in the last year. But about four or five years ago, it was a little bit more innovative. That business um, was acquired in 2017. The founders were looking to the business had really grown faster and bigger than the founders then could um, could handle and move on to the next stage of its its growth. So they sold down a majority position in their business. Bought on a private because, sorry, firm. it was because we, the, the business needed a lot of more money to grow. And so it was really a, a, what we would call a growth equity uh, type of transaction. You, you sell part of a business because you need a big cash injection, not, not because you're looking for succession. Or I, I think it was a little bit of both. But the first motivation was very important for them. They, they had a business that was fast growing, that they had bootstrapped the business through their own equity th through uh, its first phase of its growth. Uh, when they bought on new equity, which allowed them to expand, particularly from Australia to New Zealand, and then from, excuse me, from New Zealand to Australia, and then from Australia to the rest of the Asia Pacific region, they needed more capital, yes. And they also needed someone that knew how to build businesses and bring on a more professional uh, management team, for example, and just allow them to step back a little bit from the day-to-day -day running of the business. So it was, it was a little bit of both, but no doubt they took some money off the table and have done very well so far and have stayed in the business as equity holders and have done extremely well uh, subsequently. So the sort of things that private equity brought to that business were, again, the transformative things that private equity um, brings when private equity is done well, uh, corporatize the founder-led founder business, you know, expand into markets, help um, hire additional people of high quality that have been in businesses as they grow inside size, provide some expertise to um, help with uh, merger and acquisition uh, of synergistic smaller businesses. In the end, they haven't really done that, but that was there should they wanted to. In the end, the business is, has grown so fast and so well, and it's really become a business of its time that, um, that you know, three years on, it's, it's ready for sale, probably a little bit earlier than everyone thought. But it was just a classic growth uh, equity style business moving from one smallish market, New Zealand, to a slightly larger market, Australia, and then being able to offer those um, education services through to the rest of the Asia Pacific region. And how big is it now? Like how many employees or what are the sales? Mm -hmm. So it's um, close to 100 employees. Um, sales are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It um, has a very strong reoccurring revenue uh, run rate because um, schools in Australia, New Zealand, um, it's largely to private schools, although it's won a very large state contract recently, uh, largely make their decisions about what education platforms, uh, if they're going to change their platform or indeed bring one on, make it beginning of the academic year. So for Australia and New Zealand, they make it in October, November before the next calendar year. And so um, you get a very good window as to what revenue and earnings will look like over the next year. And you get a very high uh, re-up rate or uh, resubscription rate because you know once you lock into a particular uh, education system or any sort of system for that matter, we all know this, um, the switching costs are very high, whether it's just through inertia or the fact that the platform performs well, you don't want to go through the switching costs and move to someone else. So it's 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 growing in multiples um, in yeah. terms of size and from equity, it's, it's growing from a dollar today is worth around five or six dollars today. Yeah, I'm surprised, amazing, yeah. Uh, and especially with uh, recent events, all these type of businesses have done extremely well.
They have. And you know, they've, they've done some very good things as corporate citizens. They gave away their software throughout the pandemic, right? You know, they're, they're a registered B Corp. They're a profit with purpose business. And so um, it was very important for the founders to have the right private equity group to support them and who saw the future of the business in the same way as they did. So I'm sure then, they would have been. But it's a bit tricky, have, right, for a private equity firm to run a B Corp business because you want to make as much money as possible. It's kind of what you have to do for your LPs and what usually everybody is set up to do. So if a founder says, okay, just give things for free and that's it, it costs you money, but that's what I want. How does that work? It's a bit of tension there. Um, there's only tension if you think about short-term returns and the achievement of short-term goals. There's not really a tension if you think about the long-term viability of the business and the attractiveness of the business from a value perspective to a prospective acquirer. A lot of people value um, those sorts of characteristics of a business, perhaps even more so today than they did five years ago. And so I wouldn't say there's necessarily a conflict between um, a long-term value-oriented investor, uh, an equity investor who wants to maximise equity returns and being able to do some things which don't have an immediate uh, payback from a return. That's on right. So almost paradoxically, um, because private equity has a four-year horizon and then needs to sell, actually here they prefer not grabbing as much money as possible now during the pandemic because they need to sell the business. And so if they behave nicely, then the business has a nice name and then they can sell it for more. And because the sale is imminent, then they, 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 they want to make uh, the bride look pretty, as we say. So. Um, Absolutely. But that's uh, an interesting lesson. Thank you very much. And mm. and um, quickly, uh, just to be fair, because we did a New Zealand one, can we do quickly an Australian one to see uh, what happens? We, we, we can. We, we can. And another business we've been involved with in the last few years is a business process outsourcing uh, business. Uh, it's really a call center and customer support business. Uh, as you're aware, uh, large organizations, medium-sized organizations don't tend to run their own customer support uh, and call center, problem problem solving, help desks, those sorts of things. There was a large trend of offshoring these types of services to uh, for Australia. It was primarily to the Philippines and to India. Um, what's really happened in the last year to 18 months is a, a an acute understanding of how important customer service and call centers and support is to the supply chain of a business and to understanding what a customer uh, wants over a long-term relationship for an energy company or for a telco um, and so forth. And so what we've seen in Australia is an onshoring of business process outsourcing. The market in Australia was actually quite fragmented about you know the top uh, seven or eight businesses had about 10% of the market each. There was an opportunity to acquire a number of these uh, business process outsourcing businesses and provide a you know a large market player. Larger players want to deal with larger service providers. And so uh, this was very attractive to the government in particular, uh, the Australian federal government, but also state governments. It was attractive to uh, blue chip uh, companies. And so our, our financing went to... Um, finance a buy and build strategy in the business process outsourcing space. Um, again, it was organic growth. So part of the money went just to employing more people, getting more real estate, getting more call centers up and running, often in regional Australia, as well as in the cities. Uh, part of the money went to finance bolt-on acquisitions. Uh, part of the it money was inorganic went to- inorganic growth. Yeah. yeah so it was exactly. a combination of organic growth and inorganic growth. 
Exactly, exactly. And, um, and as a result, um, you know, that business is now, you know, the leading business process um, outsourcing um, firm in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's it will be very, very attractive to an offshore multinational. It could well be listed, but really um, most businesses in Australia and New Zealand are not listed following private equity ownership. Um, most businesses in Australia are sold to a, a large uh, trade acquirer, someone else in the industry, or indeed, uh, if it's small and mid-sized private equity transaction, very often they're sold to a larger private equity firm in a secondary buyout. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very common uh, form of exit for a private equity firm. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Grant. This was very, very interesting. So this was uh, Down Under Laid Bear. Don't forget to subscribe and to rate it if you liked it. And congratulations on your acquisition of uh, one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.